this is an uncomfortable truth to say, but like most girls upon having their sort of first blood when they when they hit puberty would have been pregnant by their second one. Like that's the way that it oh, wow. worked. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Chatting with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Horback. Before we get started on this week's episode, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandace.com. From there, you can either sign up for our Patreon account where you get early access to episodes and the occasional bonus content, or you can click that little link that says buy me coffee. Both things help me out a ton and I really, really appreciate it. Another simple way to support the podcast is simply by leaving a five-star review and a comment or sharing it with Buddy if you enjoy the episode. So this week, I'm really excited. Please help me welcome Chris Williamson. So I was really excited to have you on. Um, I saw that you recently did a rebrand. So you had the Modern Wisdom logo, and now it seems like you're kind of trying to make the brand more connected to you, which I think is a great move. Um, so what? who was Chris before Modern Wisdom? Yeah, good question. So uh, Modern Wisdom isn't going anywhere. The podcast is still staying as that brand. It's my baby. But you're right, the YouTube is now my name, because I wanted to talk about stuff that I want to talk about. Um, prior to Modern Wisdom, Chris was a club promoter for a decade. I've run one of the biggest events companies in all of the UK. I've seen a million drunk people go in and out of club nights that I've stood on the door of. I've run more than a thousand events. Um, I was a party, I was a professional party boy for a long time. And um, it gives you a very unique insight into human nature watching people get drunk mm -hmm. consistently. And um, I did some reality TV stuff. I spent a lot of time uh, trying to grow clout through being on TV and being around the right people and playing that club promo game and so on and so forth. And then just got to a stage where I thought this isn't really aligned with who I want to be, with what I want to do, um, which was an uncomfortable realization to come to as many people get to, I think maybe towards the end of their twenties, I dub it for men, the, the <laughs> manopause. Um, but it, there might be an equivalent for girls. I think girls mature a little bit quicker than guys sometimes. Uh, but yeah, I got there, spent a ton of time doing self-inquiry and part of that journey was to start the podcast so that I was exposed to new, interesting people. And, um, yeah, three years on from that now and somehow it's what I spend most of my time doing, whatever version of the simulation that we've ended up in apparently permits podcaster to be a job, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Um, but I still run club nights. I still stand on the door. I still stand on the door of clubs, just not during a pandemic. Do you do it because it's, it's fun and it gets you out and socializing? So originally I did it because I liked to party because I was 18 mm -hmm. and when you're 18, everybody likes to party. Mm -hmm. And then I found that I could make a lot of money quite quickly. Um, the costs for events are quite low and you can generate a lot of cash flow very quickly. Then I found most of the competition, the other club promoters that were out there were just, they were just people that liked to get drunk and realize they could get paid for it. No one treated it like a business. Mm -hmm. Whereas me and my business partner, we, we went in with, a, I'd done a master's in international marketing and business and he'd done a degree in business as well. So we went into it with a very much a business mindset uh, and we're very competitive. So it moved from um, being recreational drinking to professional drinking to professional business. And after a while, it, it was almost holding me back a little bit. I think I was being, I was staying um, 
in an old version of me. Mm -hmm. And again, lots of people that are listening may be familiar with this. The thing that you did during formative years of your life that gave you a sense of identity and meaning. And I am the, I mean, you'll know as well, you know, you've made a, a pivot within your own career. I know. Like I was gonna getting rid of those trappings, right? Like, mm -hmm. absolutely. So tell me, like, how, how has that pivot been for you? Um, so I was at, so I wanted to get onto this because it's very rare that I get to meet someone that has probably faced similar issues. So I would imagine doing reality TV and being this, you know, professional party boy that when you launch this really amazing podcast and you tackle some, you know, heavy topics and you have these heavy hitting intellectuals on that maybe they kind of stigmatized you a little bit or, they thought, oh, he's just, you know, this, this party boy or this airhead or, and I also didn't know that you were so into fitness up until recently. And then you have your Twitter header where you're just jacked. So, you know, that obviously some people have their, their <laughs> predispositions about that too, because in a way it's also selling sex or sexual appeal. Right. Um, so I had a similar issue, obviously pivoting from the porn career into podcasting and people are like, she's just this dumb bimbo. I'm not going to listen to her podcast. So I have had some really open, open-minded people. I, I think Gad Sad helped me out a ton because he was my whale that kind of got on and he put me on his channel and he was just so great about the whole episode that I think it really helped to get a lot of other guests and get some other listeners to take me seriously. Um, but then I've had some other people that were scheduled and then I think that maybe their team was like, this isn't such a good idea. Let's not associate with her brand. Um, so it's still new. It's been less than a year, but there's definitely been some hurdles. So I'm curious if you've had similar ones. It's a really interesting question. Um, first thing is my visibility of what I used to do and perhaps the extremity of what I used to do isn't quite as comparable as your previous career might have been if you were to google if you were to google my name or like one of my past one of my past monikers or something an alias that i used to use um it was different things would come up um <laughs> but lately <laughs> yes it's difficult it's difficult it's difficult to dispense with the old characters that you used to have mm -hmm. um one thing here's an interesting conversation that almost no one ever has right as a good-looking woman, you will understand some of the preconceptions that people have around you when you try and enter into an arena which isn't using your looks. So specifically something like mm -hmm. podcasting, right? We all know about that like um, superhero movie freak of a girl who happens to be like a 10 out of 10, but also like she's a super genius in quantum physics or something right. like that, you know, like the Wonder Woman mm -hmm. type thing. Um, and, but I don't think that there's an equivalent archetype for guys. I don't think that good looking guys have an equivalent level of acceptance because when you are an all right looking dude, what you get is zero sympathy. The first thing that happens is there is absolutely no sympathy at all that comes for you. And, um, I actually put something in my newsletter the other day that I think really relates to this quite nicely. So it says that um, this quote from Wilt Chamberlain, nobody roots for Goliath. People largely privilege the emotional states of a low power character over those of a high power character. Basically, we have a natural affinity to the underdog. 
I think it's why we love rags to riches stories, fat people who've got fit and inspirational uh, motivation. It reminds us that if everything goes wrong for us, we might be able to get out of the muck and mire too. That person is also seen as less of a threat because their success seems less secure. If they came from nothing, then maybe they'll go back to nothing. So we don't need to worry about them competing with us as much. And one of the things, like imagine every X Factor or um, singing competition show that you've ever seen. Think about the archetype of the, the guy or the girl who's maybe not super good looking and they're kind of their shoulders are down and they're sort of mumbling to the floor and they've something bad's happened in the past and everyone's like getting behind them and like, look, come on, let's, let's give them some encouragement here. And then they belt out this tune and they're like, oh my God, how amazing, how, how romantic, what a beautiful sort of story to listen to. Mm. Now flip that story on its head and have that person be a really good looking guy or girl. Everything changes. Mm -hmm. Everybody presumes that because it would appear outwardly that they've got everything sorted, that inwardly they should have a sense of self-confidence and self-esteem as well. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way it works. Your outward appearance has absolutely, well, it has almost zero bearing on what's going on inside. Some of the best looking people that I know are some of the most fucked up ones yeah. internally. And that means that you, your external appearance has very little bearing on your internal state. So yeah, to, to round that up, I think there's so many interesting points to talk about just not not judging people's exterior uh, state as like some window into what's going on inside. And it would make life a lot easier for everybody. I if totally they did that. agree. There was um, there was a point in time where I was on social media and I was being vulnerable about something. I think it it had to do with the self-esteem thing. I don't know what what kind of triggered that conversation. But I actually had more negative comments than people that were like, I can relate or thank you for sharing this story. It was the common theme was similar to, well, how dare you complain because you're a good looking female or how dare you say that you're insecure? Because imagine what it's like for someone else. It's like, that doesn't matter. It doesn't, I'm not constantly living with a mirror in front of me. If even if like I was universally good looking, which I don't think anybody is, right? We all have had these moments where someone tore us down or we just felt bad about ourselves. And especially when you're younger in those kind of puberty stages, we're all a little weird and going through changes and some of those things last. So we almost have more sympathy, like you said, for the underdog or the less fit or the not so good looking, but if, you know, if you're ranked anywhere on a scale, it's like, how dare you be anything but happy all of the time? And that's not realistic. Well, I get it. Like I, you know, to anybody that's listening, it's like, oh no, <laughs> being good looking so hard. Like, you know, it, it's not a very compelling right. narrative. Like I understand, but if you think that the way that someone looks is a direct indicator of how fulfilled and meaningful they are inside, then you're not a serious mm -hmm. thinker. You haven't spent any time really properly thinking about this. By that virtue, you'd say that anyone who's ugly can never be mm -hmm. fulfilled. You're like, okay, well, that's not true. So mm -hmm. let's flip it on its head. Um, yeah, it's weird. It, it, it's, it's a weird one. But then I also think that, especially in the modern era, there's so much so much good news and support around people growing and changing and letting go of old identities. Now, you know, you can find a niche for anything mm -hmm. that you want to do or want to be. If you want to dedicate your entire life to some weird niche comic book from like the 1960s, there's probably a subreddit for that. And you've probably got 5,000 brand new friends that are going to be your best mate 
or if you want to really get into like competitive speed stitching or something like that, which I imagine there must be something like that. There's probably a YouTube community of people that do that. So all of these things are actually allowing us to liberate ourselves from the labels that we used to have. Think back to our parents' generation. They would have very, very much been stuck with the people geographically that were around mm -hmm. them. And if that group of people wasn't going to change and you don't have no support, it's going to be very, very hard for you to be yourself. Think about the the um, gay man in an Orthodox Jewish community or the the feminist growing up in a, a very sort of traditionally conservative community or the conservative that's growing up in a super sort of liberal 60s community, whatever it might be. You're not going to have any of that support, mm -hmm. whereas now you do. And the more as well that people like yourself um, make profound life pivots the better like if someone can go from porn to podcasting like somebody going from oh i might i might stop doing accounting and move into finance like is that going to be or i really i really think that i might take up my like woodworking or whatever it's like yes you you're, you're definitely going to be able to do that so yeah i mm -hmm. think it's a good example so how what inspired you i guess to leave the reality tv world because i think it's it's a little bit different over in the UK and Europe, I would assume then the States, like it's consumed the States. We are the reality TV country, essentially. It just dictates so much of our culture. So it is, it's very alluring. It seems like instant fame is glorious. And then you get sponsorships and you, you know, you get put on this pedestal and a lot of people get sucked in, even ones that don't become successful or don't figure out how to monetize it after the show. So how did you have like a wake up moment or what was that, tr that initial transition like, or the decision to transition? Like, I think you'd be surprised at how similar the UK is to the U S with regards okay. to reality TV. I get, I get a significant number proportion of my direct messages are about advice for how to um, be on reality TV. Like, remembering these people could ask tell me about what it was like to speak to robert green or james clear or aubrey marcus or seth godin or jordan peterson or gad sad like you have these titans of the world that can teach you evergreen insights about how to live your life but no you would rather me try and give you the tips for how to get onto reality tv and i think the reason for that is that it is it is um very easily gained fame instantly overnight without having to put mm. any work in and people know that people realize that hang on if i can get this right if i can do that thing i'm finally going to feel special i think everybody inside has this belief this feeling that they're unique and made for great things because we all get to see the experience of the world through this really rich consciousness that we have I get to see all of the different vicissitudes of life as I struggle with this thing and I have these deep thoughts. But even the best person that you know in the world, you're only ever going to get to see a tiny little sliver of what they tell you about their internal state. So we always believe that our internal state is far richer than everybody else's, just naturally because of what we get to see. And then when someone is offered basically free fame, do you want to be plucked out of obscurity and made known nationally or internationally just for mm -hmm. existing? Yes, obviously. Like, why wouldn't people want to do that? But the problem is, what is the subtext that that tells other people about how to achieve fame? Is it by consistently grinding away, doing the right thing at the right time, working very hard and very well on the creative pursuit that is your calling? Or is it just being in the right place and sending the right application in and having 5,000 more followers when you apply mm -hmm. than the other people? 
or spending time like curating mm-hmm. your Instagram feed. So I get I get concerned about um, what it sort of tells young people is the route to success and how they should identify the success. Um, but I decided to stop because most of the people in mm. that industry are fucking miserable. Like the vast, vast, vast majority of people that have blue ticks on Instagram and Twitter, there is a an incoming existential threat, like a meteor that's just circling. And then at some point, the menopause will kick in or the girl will decide that she wants to settle down and be a mum. And the previous pathways of adoration and praise and meaning that they used to get, which were all externalized, which were fans, which were going out and partying and doing stuff like that, they're going to have to stop unless they want to be a shit mom or dad. And when that happens, they're going to have to say, okay, who am I without the adoration of all of these random people on the internet? And they're going to trip over themselves into this very, very big hole of existential nothingness. And they're going to have to do the work. And I guess I decided that I would sooner get out ahead of that. Um, And that was sort of, and also I was never really that aligned with it. Like you can play the game, but really I wasn't ever, I didn't love gossiping about like that bird and that guy. And she totally mugged him off last night, bruv. And like, I don't care. Like, that's not what I want to spend my days thinking about, but that's what you had to do. Um, but yeah, it was it was fun. Like we do we do varying gradations of dumb things when we're young. And if the dumbest things that I did was like go on crappy reality TV shows, then like I'll, I'll yeah, take that. Yeah, that's not that bad. And I agree. So I used to try and post little um, like the, you know the questions on Instagram. So I would kind of give a hint as to who was coming on and see if anyone had a valuable question to ask the guest. And then I would include that in the last segment of the podcast. And I tried it and I tried it and I tried it because I just didn't want to give up on, I guess, my followers. But at some point I had to, because if you scrolled through that comment box, I was like, did you even attempt to ask a question that had anything to do with this guest? It's always, how do I get into porn? And I'm so even though they're very different, there's a lot of similarities. And I'm like, that's probably, it's definitely not the path of least resistance. I wouldn't recommend it for most. Um, I'm having this amazing speaker on and you don't want to take the opportunity to learn or maybe have your answer or your question answered. Um, so it's definitely a little disheartening, but I'm, I'm keeping at it. One of the things there is there's mm-hmm. always going to be a lag, right? Between what you see of you and mm-hmm. what everybody else sees of you. So now people say when they find out when I reference to do with being on reality TV, love Island or take me out or being a club promoter, people that listen to my show say, hang mm-hmm. on, you were on love Island. Like I would have never started listening to this show if I'd found out that you were on love Island, but now that they're, they're too deep in, right. They listen, they listen three times a week and they can't, they, they can't extirpate themselves from my show anymore, which is great. But, um, I think over time, people's memories are really, really short. Like they really, really are. And especially if you're growing, if you're doing things that acquire new audiences, they'll know you for what you do now, not what you did before. And very quickly, you actually end up being in a place that's much more aligned. And also like clout's clout, you know, like mm-hmm. clicks are clicks. No one, t- no one can tell whether the YouTube view that you got on this episode was 500,000 people that just love porn mm-hmm. or 500,000 people who really love God sad, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's one and the same. Mm-hmm. It's like, have you seen that video? It, a lot of businesses use it for crossing the chasm. So it's that middle ground before you 
um, have mass adoption, whether it's an invention, uh, it's typically used for inventions, but something like this, like a pivot as well. So it's at a hippie festival and it's that one guy and he's, everyone's just sitting on blankets and he's just hula hooping like a maniac all by himself. And everyone's looking at him like, who's this weirdo? And then there's a time lapse and then one person joins, then two people join. And then by the end of the, the um, set from the concert, everyone's dancing. So it's, it goes into just like sticking with it because eventually everyone's going to join your crazy hula hoop party, or at least you hope so. That's it. We're all just, we're all just having our own crazy hula hoop party. Exactly. So um, when you first started, I know I had a lot of anxiety because I knew people were going to have, you know, their own idea of who I was based off of the material that I put out there. Did you have to, I guess, struggle with that at all internally? Were you nervous about sharing yourself? Because an, an example I give is as intimate as my previous career was, I think that podcasting is actually a lot more intimate for me because you're sharing like your essence, the real you, your mind, your beliefs, like the core of who you are. And there's something a lot more vulnerable about putting that out there to be criticized. Um, so I guess, how did you, how did you deal with that? I think that's an interesting insight. Yeah. It's strange for people to think, well, that girl's had a vagina on the internet. How can she not just talk about what she likes in life? Mm -hmm. But we all lean toward the things that we find easiest, right? Like to you, perhaps after a, a little while in porn, it would have just been like, oh, another day mm -hmm. at work. Now to most other people, that would seem really weird. For me, standing outside of the front of an event that's got 3000 people waiting on Halloween, in the center of the city and trying to coordinate all of this to so other people might have been stressful, but to me just felt like another night at work. Um, personally, it wasn't, I, I think that my departure from my previous career to my current one uh, isn't as um, orthogonal as yours. Um, I think that what I was doing before a lot of the time was trying to teach the young guys and girls that come and work for me, look, here are some of the lessons, here are some of the things that you should and shouldn't do. Like, don't get into a relationship with someone during freshers week. Don't decide the person that you're going to move in and live with for the, re for the next two years at university when you've only known them for three weeks, like blah, 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 blah. And really all it is, all the show is, is just that at scale. It's just me going, here's a bunch of things that I did right or did wrong. Here's a bunch of people that also did some stuff right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Take away what you want. So for me, it wasn't that big of a change, but I can totally see how that might have been for you to go, oh, hang on a second. I've spent a fair bit of time. I'm used to being on camera, mm -hmm. just in a different way. Yeah. So with your podcast, I was, I scrolled way back. So I got some of uh, probably the first episodes and it's really cool to see the evolution of, of the podcast, but also of you. And I think two of the ones I was watching today was just you and a couple of your buddies with the one mic in the middle of the room. And you guys were just talking about relationships. And I was like that people, I don't know if they have a true appreciation for how brave something like that is to hit record and then publish it. I think that's really brave. Um, so your first, I want to say three or four that I saw from 2018 were a lot, um, were very focused on relationships. Was there a reason that that's where you kind of um, started? And did you maybe have some juicy relationship experiences that led you to trying to, you know, share your experiences with your listeners? I think relationships are a good commonplace to start. I wanted to talk about everything on the show, understanding myself and the world around me and hoping that the listeners do as well. Think about any TV show that you've ever watched. There is always a love interest. 
even if it's like a sports film, some sort of sports film, there's always like in the background, there's some love interest thing going on because it's so fundamental mm -hmm. to who we are. It is absolutely crucial to the essence of what's going on. Everybody needs to know about the romantic arc that's going on in something that's totally unrelated to romance, right? So I just thought I had insights. I've watched a million of the guys and girls who've worked for me, young guys and girls between the ages of 18 and 25, fail faceplant in and out of relationships. And I wanted to try and give some insights around what I thought was some of the lessons that I'd learned. So one of them that I like to talk about, there's an episode of Family Guy where Peter is watching Bonnie, Joe's wife, get changed through the window. So he's got these binoculars up and he's looking through the window at Joe's wife, Bonnie, getting changed. And Stewie comes over and he says, what are you doing, fat man? And he looks and he sees that he's looking at Bonnie and he goes, but I don't understand. You've, you've, you've got a smoking hot wife at home. Oh, I get it. It doesn't have to be better. It just has to be different. And I was like, holy fucking shit. If that doesn't explain a compulsion that almost every guy that I have ever had work for me has had, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be better. It just has to be different. And when you spend 10 years watching human nature unfold, the new event managers decided to sleep with one of the new hostesses and one of the new hostesses has gone behind his back and is doing this thing. And she's, she's decided to turn lesbian now and fuck guys and blah, blah, blah. There was insights to be had and, and have them we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really fascinating. So for me, it's, it's always surprising for a lot of listeners or followers, but I was a wildly jealous person growing up. Um, to the point where it just didn't make any sense. And then as I've become older, and I guess just started questioning more about where that emotion is kind of coming from, whether it's mine, or whether it was kind of programmed essentially by role models when I was little, which is really what it was, um, when I got down to the root of it, I was able to get a much healthier relationship with that jealousy, not to say that it's completely gone in any instance, because I'm human. So obviously, there are instances when it shows up. But it's being able to understand that men check out other girls. Like you could be completely devoted to whoever you're with and never cheat, but you are, you're not, unless you're blind, you're going to appreciate another attractive person walking by. And I know many a fight that have happened between couples because, you know, so-and-so caught their, their partner just glancing in the wrong direction. Um, so I guess, do you have any advice when it comes to jealousy? And is there such thing as a healthy level from a man's perspective? For a man being jealous of a woman or a woman being jealous? Either of a man? or, just like your take on it. Because a lot of people ask me specifically about jealousy, just given who okay. I am. And I would love to have just like a more masculine take on it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, to all of the men that are listening, jealousy feels a lot more shameful, I think, for us. To admit that you're jealous is to admit a level of insecurity around yourself, which is very unmasculine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's no archetypes for the jealous man that isn't totally mental. Like the jealous girl who quite rightly has the fuckboy boyfriend who didn't deserve her anyway, hun. Like that's mm -hmm. that's a thing. That's that's a, a totally perfect stereotype. Whereas for men, it's it's layered with another another amount of shame, I think, which which is quite uncomfortable to swallow. Um I think serious levels of jealousy are a comment that there is something which needs to be fixed within the relationship. Like what is it that would make your jealousy go away? Is there a level of 
reassurance that you need from your partner that would make this go away. And for the most part, almost all problems in relationships can be fixed by more transparent communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, it might be easy for those of us that have hours and hours of conversations on the internet and like, what is the, what is the, that I've left on the table that, that I haven't said already? Like I've said it in one of 500 episodes, like it's going to be out there on the internet. I might as well not have any secrets from my partner. Mm. But I also understand that previously in the past, opening up like that would have made me feel quite uncomfortable. So I think when it comes to being jealous, just letting your partner know, not in a passive aggressive way, not in a overly dramatic way, just in a, hey, like this thing made me feel like this. Like, I think that if we did this instead, if if you're going to turn up late from work, can you text me? Can you just text me and let me know that you're going to be late or that you're thinking about me? Because then that would get rid of all of the worries that I've got. Okay. Or if you're going to go out with the guys, like just drop me a message and let me know that you're not going to come home or that you're going to be late or that you're going to be whatever. For the most part, the problems that we have stem from a lack of mm-hmm. communication. At least I think. What do you I recommend? totally agree with that. I would push back a little bit because I think there's a difference between if my husband goes out and then he doesn't show up till five in the morning and gave me no reasoning like hey I'm gonna be late or I might not I'm gonna go stay out with like the boys I'd be more pissed I don't think that there would be um any part of me that was wondering if he was with someone else or if he was misbehaving I would just be like that's just rude like you're just a rude man right now so that would be my reaction to it the younger version of me when I was riddled with insecurity and wildly jealous, I would have been like, he's with all of these women and he's disrespecting me and he's cheating on me. And he's like, that's where my mind would have trailed and it would have been chaos. So I think if you're having the other person constantly, like whether or not it's as simple as sending a text, but I I feel like it ends up getting more complicated. Usually it's show me a picture to prove that you're, or FaceTime to, you know, it gets crazier and crazier the longer it goes. So I think instead of addressing the issue, you're just kind of bandaging it. And I don't know, maybe I'm being cynical. No, I think, I think that you are right. The, um, it depends on whether or not you think that that can be fixed fundamentally. Like for me, my, my view of relationships has been jaded by seeing so many of them fail. Mm -hmm. Like the vast, vast, vast majority of relationships that I've watched unfold in front of me that have either been friends or employees or just people that come to our Mm -hmm. events have ended in complete disaster. Mm -hmm. And you have to presume when you enter into a relationship with someone that that's the most likely outcome. Even if you get married, it's more likely that you're going to be divorced than that you're going to Mm -hmm. stay together. And this isn't a marriage. This is you seeing some girl that you met starting to see some girl that you met like four weeks ago in a nightclub somewhere or like while you were at work in a restaurant or something like you have to presume that catastrophe and disaster are on the menu for relationships they are the rule not the exception um when you think like that i think it actually liberates you from one of the fears because one of the fears around jealousy and around anything going wrong in relationships is oh god well maybe if this thing's wrong then what else is wrong? It's like, well, if you always go into the interaction with the presumption that there will be more wrong than right, and it's a case of both of you trying to make each other get slowly less wrong and less wrong and less wrong until you're relatively well-formed human beings, then that might work. Also, I, I don't know about you, but I was such a prick to girls until the age of 28, 29. I'm 33 now. I've been 
phenomenal for the last few years, but I was so mm -hmm. bad, like just the worst immature juvenile sort of all of the, all of the fuck boy things, like everything that you thought a club promoter would do, that is exactly how I would mm -hmm. behave. And I see the same in girls too. I don't think that this is purely for guys, like girls up until the age of 25, 26 can be unbelievably immature and unbelievably petty and juvenile. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder whether we need to almost change some of the cultural stereotypes around what people think is like an acceptable age to settle down. Because for some people, yeah, my business partner and his missus started going out at 20, got married at 26. Now they've got three kids and two dogs and a wonderful house and all this stuff. But they're a massive exception. And for the most part, people with relationships under 25 are just stumbling their way through a minefield of shit. Mm -hmm. Like it's terrible. Most of the relationships end in catastrophe. Um, and I think that if people just conceded that a little bit more, if we got out of the meet, meet the sweetheart at 18, get married, stay together for life stereotype that perhaps has been carried on from our parents' era, maybe we would be less nervous around when things start to go wrong. Maybe we'd actually be able to let go of things in a more healthy way. I don't know. That's an interesting perspective. Um, I want to say, I can't remember where I was listening to the statistics, but it was that like Gen Z, the, the chances of Gen Z marriages um, ending in divorce was almost 70%, I want to say. And then millennials, I still think is right around 50, maybe a skosh higher. But it's a lot higher for the generation behind us. Do you, and I, I see this even just with regular relationships. Like you said, it's not, it's not isolated to just marriage. Do you think that there's a reason why we're seeing this, this shift? Because I would have assumed it would, would have been the opposite. So I always say like our parents' generation, it was right below 50% for divorce. And I think a lot of that was, there wasn't that open communication, right? Like this was the, the carved out definition of what a marriage was and you have to fit perfectly into it. You have to have the two and a half kids and the house and the mom stays home and the dad works. And um, it was very rigid. So there wasn't a lot of flexibility to say, well, actually, this is what I need in a relationship. And this is what I need romantically to, you know, keep that aspect healthy. There wasn't a lot of that communication um, or curation for the relationship. And then I think I felt like our generation started having more of those conversations, like, I love you, you love me. But this, this definition of what a, a marriage is doesn't work for me and like what works for you what do you what kind of communication do you need what kind of romance do you need do you want to be in an open situation do you want to have you know whatever that is like we have so many more options than our parents did so it's like okay maybe we'll start to see a change um, in the statistics because now we're we're treating marriage as if two individuals are deciding to spend the rest of their lives together rather than this institutional definition. And you actually see the opposite happening. Um, so you have all of this liberation and I guess people are kind of running from, away from the traditional aspects of what a relationship or marriage are, but then at the same time, they're failing at a much higher rate. So I was wondering if you have any insight as to why we're seeing those numbers spike. I think it's just, it's so trite to say it now, right? But think about the transient transactional nature of sex, that the, all of the, you can do whatever you want, you can be whatever you want. The fluidity that we're seeing with gender expression and sexual identity is also being matched with 
not slut shaming, not, I don't know what the equivalent is for guys, fuckboy shaming. Like people can just do what they want. And this is what happens when you get yourself into a society that casts off a lot of tradition. We think that science and rationality and this utilitarian approach to the world, if we can land a spaceship on the moon, why can't we sleep with as many people as we want? And I think that the problem that we've encountered is that one, those two things don't necessarily map on top of each other. Casting off religion is the explanation for how the earth came to be and how humans evolved and why the dinosaurs aren't here anymore and stuff like that. That may have been smart, but casting off some of the traditions to do with having social cohesion between you and your local geographical area uh, around having weekly rituals that allow you to bond with the people that you know and to actually reinforce the family group, mm -hmm. uh, to have support structures that help families to stay together. All of these sorts of things. These are the secular sides of religion and tradition that have also been thrown out. So the baby, the bathwater, and the bath have all gone out together. And think about now, like if it's one Tinder swipe away from your next relationship, cheating's become easier. The ability to pick up and move has, has become easier. People are, as Vance Crow, my buddy uh, who has been on his show says, people are anywhere people, not somewhere people. And an anywhere person doesn't care about where they are. They're not invested in the local community. They don't actually have roots set down. They're just, and I'm all for the digital nomad style of life. Like I, I do it as well, but it doesn't lend itself massively towards being committed to a long-term relationship and settling mm -hmm. down roots. There's this quote that says, tradition is a set of solutions for which we have forgotten the problems. And when you think about that, you're like, oh, okay. A lot of the things that we did were there to fix problems that we didn't realize we had. And now that we've got rid of those things, the problems have come back. And finding cohesion in the family unit is one of them. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. You think that there was a little bit of our parents' generation in ours and far less of our parents' generation in the one that's coming on. If you thought that our generation, the millennials, were liberal with sex and with the way that they saw men and women's roles within the family and how you can, it doesn't matter, you can remarry at any age. That's only increasing as you get on in an always unconnected world. Like you can TikTok, Tinder swipe your way from half-baked relationship to one night stand until, you know, until your seventies, like you can just keep on doing mm -hmm. that. So why wouldn't you? Yeah, I have, I have such a hard time with that because Obviously, my opinion's going to be a little bit jaded given um, like just who I am and my experiences. But like, so obviously, I'm not in a typical marriage, right? That's given my my history with porn like that. Most people would not be OK with that situation. Um, a lot of advices or like the our parents advice would never to be to sleep with someone on the first date like that's almost guarantees that that relationship never blossoms into anything substantial. Well, shockingly to probably a lot of people, I had never had a, for a one night stand, never had one. Um, I broke up with a very long-term boyfriend and I was kind of hitting this rebellious streak. I was like, I'm gonna find out you know, who I am. I'm gonna just live it up. I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna have my first one night stand. Like that was my 
goal for that summer. Um, and then I meet my now husband and I was like, okay, it's going to be that guy. <laughs> we hook up. Um, and I was so proud of myself. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was unattached. I didn't ask for his number. I was so proud of myself because for me, it was a sense of independence after being in a relationship for far too long that I should have left earlier. Um, and then I ended up marrying the guy. So it's funny because that advice is, you know, it'll never turn into something, but also I'm terrible at one night stands because that was my only one I've ever had. And again, we're married with a baby now, <laughs> so I didn't do it so great, but I don't think, I don't think that you necessarily have to be super rigid when it comes to sexuality in order to say that you're going to get a traditional family, if that's what you want, or if it's going to turn into marriage or whatever. Um, I definitely think there needs to be some kind of parameters around a relationship. Even the loosest relationships still have boundaries. Think about what you've just said there, though. Even though you were able to do the one night stand thing, the underlying assumptions, the subtext that you were bringing into it was that of a natural romantic. Mm. You were still going into that situation and almost having to create a forcing function to get you to like put blinders on so you didn't look at the relationship stuff over here it's like right one night stand like don't 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 bother with this stuff like that doesn't matter anymore and um yeah i think that all that's happened is you've just ended up manifesting your way of seeing relationships which is something that you invest mm -hmm. in uh but for a lot of other people the the culture that they're given isn't that it's that <clears throat> like you know the, the whole clap back movement like anybody that's talking about how you need to get one over on the person that you were with last, like guys have played this game for ages and now girls are doing it as well. And like fair play, it, it's people can do whatever they want, but we should be very, very, very careful with how we throw tradition out of the window because a lot of the time it's there for a very good reason. And it's going to take us so long to get back there, mm -hmm. to get back to, is, is, it, is it maybe a good idea not to sleep with the person on the first date? Like every time, is it maybe oh, a good yeah. idea to not do it every time that yeah. you go out dating? Like, it, do you know what I mean? Like, is that even a, but to say that now it's like, well, guys can do it. I'm like, well, no, maybe for guys as well. Maybe for guys as well. It's not a fantastic idea mm -hmm. to do it on the very first time that you go out. Now, all of the best relationships that I've been in have been ones where there has been more game playing at the beginning. There has been more like of a courting mm -hmm. period that builds you up to it. And You've had Gad mm -hmm. Sadon, right? He would know this. From an evolutionary perspective, You, what is the signal that you are giving to your potential mate if you give up sex easily as a woman and as a guy, but specifically as a woman? In Throughout all of human history, men have been the sexual protagonists and women have been the sexual gatekeepers. Why? Because the cost of having sex is significantly higher for women than it is for men. And even if you're not having sex to make children, that context still continues that is always going to be the way that it is going to be and if you are a girl that's listening who wants to get into a relationship i i think like I, it's so fantastic that that's happened for you but i'm gonna guess even you must have thought fuck like i rolled the dice there and this kind of came out to now this amazing relationship and i'm super happy and we've got this child and everything's going well but it it could have gone the other way. It could have signaled something that maybe wouldn't have been so, so, so good. No, I, I agree. Know. I also, I'm someone that believes in fate. Um, so I also think that some of those things happen that are outside of your control. And if you're kind of living on your path for a lack of better words, then that's when things start to happen for you and not to you. Um, kind of 
mentality. But I also know there's definitely a narrative with my generation or our generation of people not wanting to settle down and to have to have families. I don't know really anyone that has kids. Most of my friends are still single. Um, and we're all, you know, almost, almost all of us are in our thirties. And to me, that's kind of crazy because when in history has that happened? And I know for me, it's kind of lonely because you do want people that are at similar life stages at you to share your experiences, like what you're going through. Like there's things that only a parent knows, or there's things that only a married couple knows. I think it's really silly when we say that there's no difference between marrying someone. So many people say that too. They're like, oh, was it any different once we got married? I was like, I felt such a shift. It was very different. I mean, we still lived together before. It's almost like, I mean, it's going to sound overly simplified, but it's, it's that obvious commitment. It's like, this isn't, we get into a fight and I kick you out and now we're, we're broken up. It's, there's going to be paperwork. There's going to be lawyers. I live in the South. So when you get divorced, you actually have to be separated for a year before you can divorce. You can't just divorce. Even in domestic violence, that's how strict it is. It's like they want you to go to counseling to try to fix the marriage. It's not, you can't make a rash decision. Um, So there's that level. And then there's, I mean, when someone decides to say, I'm going to try to be with you until we're both old, gray, and one of us dies, right? Like, there's something beautiful and romantic about that. It's not like, I'm just here so long as things are easy, fun, and sexy. It's like, I'm here for when things get ugly, and I'm here for things when things get old and boring, and, you know, we just want to sit across the table and not talk. And there's just that level of commitment that's that cannot be there without marriage, in my opinion unpopular taste. I think you're right. Yeah. And look at what that is. It's symbolic. It's sacred. It's tradition, you know, mm-hmm. like that's what people are. That's what people are missing. And I, I don't know. I, I'm so conflicted about it because I love all of the trappings that we've got with modernity. I love the fact that we have that, that women can choose to be anything that they want mm-hmm. to be, that they can decide to have a career or they can decide to have mm-hmm. children. But the decision of whether or not to have children or have a career is a really mm-hmm. difficult one. And now every woman has mm-hmm. to make that choice. Previously, although the choice wouldn't have been there and that might feel constricting, at least they would have never had the turmoil of having to do it. Now, I'm not for like sending women back to the house and taking them out of the workplace. My point is that this is a difficult discussion to have. Mm-hmm. It's a nuanced and, and uncomfortable place for everybody to be because your biological imperative as a woman is to have children. The only way that you're here is because every one of your mothers had you or had the one that came before you. That's the only way that it works. So there's like a very, very strong biological impulse that is continuing to pull us through this. And the same thing goes for the marriage. Like, yeah, maybe maybe you can get all of the same legal protections and you can own the house in the same way, but there's something about the ritual, the sacredness of actually going through, having the family there, thinking about it, planning the wedding, you know, putting, why do we have any sort of ritual at all? Like, why do people celebrate Christmas? Why don't we just celebrate Christmas in the middle of June? Well, it's because it's on that date and you go through the rigmarole of making the food and putting the tree up and all of these sorts of things. And again, we should dispense with those traditions at our peril. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point too, because in my generation growing up, it was very girl power. There was a lot of that uh, feminist dialogue going on that you can have everything that you want. Um, you can have the baby, the family, and the rock star career. And I think a lot of us are realizing it's not that simple. 
Um, and then we were also told that biological, like that biological clock wasn't real. I know that was the narrative from a lot of people um, that were around me. And I kind of always knew I wanted kids. So I didn't really fall into that. I'll have kids when I'm 45 thing that they tell you is an option. Um, but what's interesting is I don't think there's enough of that conversation happening with women specifically. It's you can have it all. Focus on your career until you are where you want to be in your mid-30s and then go have a family. But the truth is at 30, it starts to tank, like your fertility tanks. And that's assuming that your health is perfect, that you're going to the gym, you're eating right. You don't end up getting any ailments like an autoimmune disorder that might make it even more difficult. Um and they're like, oh, well, there's always IVF. Well, if you don't know someone that's gone through that process, it's really painful. It's not guaranteed. It's hard for both parties because the woman gets really hormonal and she's getting stuck with needles every day. Um, and that's not really the magical way that you want to conceive if you have a choice, right? So you see a lot of older women that pass that window and they're like, shit, I wish that someone had told me the truth. I wish I at least had made an informed decision about whether or not I could have the career or the family. And it's not to say it doesn't exist. I have both, but I, I think I'm a kind of an exception in that, in that role because I get to work from home um, and obviously make my money that way. So if I were in the real world, I think it's, what is it like 40% might be higher um, of women that have children don't go back to the workforce. It's a pretty substantial number. And that's because it's really difficult. And it's really wow. expensive. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, it might seem like a dated conversation, but for a lot of women, they kind of do have to, ch to choose. And I think that there needs to just be more open conversation so that they don't have regret either way, you know, when they're older and they can't go back in time. Well, think about what is the worst conversation to have. Is the worst conversation to remind women that I think is it 95% of your eggs are gone by the time you're 30 and then 99 by the time that you're 40, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's like basically very front loaded between the age of like 13 and, and 30 or something like that. Like, is it worse to have that uncomfortable conversation uh, or is it worse for a significant proportion of women to get to an age when they can no longer have kids mm -hmm. and want to have kids? Like we don't need, we don't need to sugarcoat and, and, and cotton wool wrap people in uh, away from these sorts of discussions. I think people are far more resilient than others would have, would mm -hmm. believe that they are right. Most women can take mm -hmm. that conversation. Like it might be an uncomfortable realization, but is it as uncomfortable as mm -hmm. never realizing? and then never being able to have kids? Like, I, I, I don't think so. As a, a reassuring statistic, last year in the UK, more women had children over the age of 40 than under the age of 20. Wow. But that tells you something, I would say, right? Like, yes, that's a, I think that's a great medical advance. Wonderful. But I think that if you were to look at that just from a brief, you know, bird's eye view that says, I wish I had kids when I was 30 or when I was in my late twenties, when, cause most people in that, at that, in that age bracket are not having kids naturally. It's just not happening. There was some medical intervention too. So that's really interesting. Think as well, like from a, from a, a woman's perspective, think about the sort of man that you're going to be attracting. If you are in your sort of mid thirties, like guys tend to date younger, mm -hmm. like, and most women tend to be attracted to older mm -hmm. men as well. Like if you're 35, you don't want to be dating someone who's 26. Mm -hmm. But if that means that if that means that you're going to be looking maybe at someone who's 46 and then you settle down and it's a few more years and then you're talking about having a dad with a newborn kid mm -hmm. who's 50. 
which again is is absolutely fine but these things are all working against biological imperatives like this is this is an uncomfortable truth to say but like most girls upon having their sort of first blood when they when they hit puberty would have been pregnant by their second one like that's the way that it oh, wow. worked that's what you know henry the eighth was marrying henry the eighth was marrying 14 year olds there was there's even a name there's a name for the period between the first time that a girl um menstruates and then when she's actually fertile the, uh, upon the like a second cycle there's a name for it in like medieval times so like we're really pushing the boundaries of biology mm. here and i'm all for people i like I'm, i can say both things here right yeah. i appreciate i'm saying look maybe most people under the age of 25 are total idiots in relationships and haven't got a clue what they're doing and yet waiting until super late in life like yeah is there a good answer for this maybe not maybe there isn't one maybe we just need to present people with facts and they need to fit it around their life like for me i'm 33 and i can't wait to be mm -hmm. a dad but i haven't found the right girl for me to settle down with yet and the situation hasn't quite been there but I know that I really want to be a dad and I feel like I'm in possession of most of the facts around what that's going to mean and what that's going to take and how I need to be prepared and stuff like that. So if and when it happens, then fantastic. Like, but I'd much sooner know all of the different options that are available to me than be blinded. It's a really interesting paradox, right? It, it seems that we're all maturing far later in life. We're all very unprepared for life compared to generations prior, right? We had people going to war, we had people um, that were creating real, creating the, the countries that we live in at very young ages. I think like the founding fathers were all in their 20s. Um, and now we have people in their 20s that are attached to their phone, attached to Twitter. Um, the biggest achievement that they're doing is voicing an opinion rather than actually creating sustainable change. And yet, um, yeah, we see like, like a decline in people making the decision to to have kids. So with all of these like statistical numbers of, you know, high, uh, high likelihood of divorce, where like what what are you going to do, I guess, going into your marriage to, I don't know, maintain the health of that relationship? Like what have you learned from all of these conversations you've had with like these great minds and just your reading on your free time? Wow, that, that is a good question. Um... I'm gonna to have to put my money where my mouth is somehow now. <laughs> so I think that, I, th I think communication, I've got really good at communicating, like obviously. And I'm also perfectly fine at being open and honest with the whoever it is that I'm talking to, whether that be over the internet or whether that be in a relationship. Um, I honestly think that that will get me pretty far. Maybe that's hopeful delusion, but just being able to understand the texture of your own mind and also as well, here's something that no one really ever talks about. Everyone says like, you've got to love yourself first before you can let somebody else love you. But nobody ever actually understands what they mean by that. Mm -hmm. No one ever actually is prepared to put their money where their mouth is and commit to, okay, so what you're saying is you need to sort all of your shit before you can get into a relationship with somebody else that you want to last long-term. Or you need to sort most of your shit to be in a place where that person is going to be made better by your existence, not worse. Mm -hmm. And like, Lord knows, I've made girls' existences worse by being in their lives throughout my 20s because I was a dick. Mm -hmm. Like I treated them badly and the same goes for them with mm -hmm. me. Whereas now I can't wait to get hold of whatever the family is that I'm going to start because I know that I've got capacity and I've sorted through 
most of the stuff that I need to sort through. And I have all of this latent potential to bring up some beautiful, emotionally intelligent, well-rounded, comfortable, confident, loved children. Like I know that I can do that. And I know that I can do that with a wife as well. And I can't wait to make her into whatever it is that she wants to be to help her go on her path to become the best version that mm -hmm. she can be. And everybody likes the idea of that. Like in a tweet, it sounds fantastic. You know, like sort yourself out and then you can let someone else love you. Like, you know, that's one of those tweets that goes, that goes viral. But when it comes down to, okay, like, are you prepared to spend a decade or five years of constant introspective work on your own, constantly assessing all of the really disgusting, terrible parts of yourself, all of the embarrassing and, and, and weird and, and unaligned elements that you've brought through from childhood or from your genetics or from the way that your parents dealt with you or from whatever it might be, your past traumas. Like, are you actually prepared to do that? And then I think something that, that is probably a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation to have there is like, well, okay, well, if I've done that work and you haven't, mm -hmm. I don't want to be in a relationship with you. Like I'm not here to fix somebody else. I'm here to find somebody else who's fixed themselves and is prepared to be in a relationship with me mm -hmm. in that way. And we can continue to fix each other as we go through, but yeah, people match up in ways where hopefully their level of sort of self-development and growth is, you know, come to a similar sort of, uh, waterline. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think communication is going to be key, finding somebody that's growth minded mm -hmm. and understanding what it is that you actually want from a partner. Like so many of the things I spoke to uh, Dr. Taylor Burroughs, who's a, a relationship counselor. She worked in Florida for years and years. So she has seen all manner of extreme um, breakups and makeups and stuff like that. And um, she said that incompatibility between people's values and schedules are the two most common reasons that people break up. It's like, if you're into mm -hmm. the gym, falling in love with someone who loves movies and art might be a bad place to start. But because we have the Disney Pixar world of love can conquer all and Romeo and Juliet, you can be from different places, different times, different values, different families, different cultures. Every, it doesn't matter because if you love each other, that will be fine. It's like, all right. You, you tell me if love is going to get past the fact that fundamentally the things that you want to do with your spare time are different 10 years deep into a relationship. Mm -hmm. And then think about how much easier it would be if the things that you want to do fundamentally are the same. Mm -hmm. Like there's practical implications here that people need to get past. So finding someone whose schedule aligns with yours. If you work nights and they work shifts, it's not going to be a very functional relationship. If they love the gym and you love comic books, you might have a little bit of difficulty mm -hmm. there. So Mark Manson has this fantastic piece of advice. He says, what is the sort of person that you want to attract and where do they exist? So you think, okay, I, I really want to try and find a girl who does X, who's into cycling. Okay, where would a girl that does cycling go? Oh, well, maybe she'd join a local cycling club. Okay, well, go there. Like, because they'll probably be there. And you just continue to roll that forward. I think that finding compatibility with schedule, with values, um, and with life plan as well, like as soon as you've settled down with someone, especially if you're thinking this is someone I want to be with for the rest of my life, you need to have a couple of conversations. Like, do you want to have kids? Because if they do and you don't or vice versa, like that's mm -hmm. it, it's over. Like that, so all of these things, but what the, the basis for all of this stuff comes from good mm -hmm. communication, not stepping into the 
discussion with an agenda or trying to make the other person feel stupid or trying to get one over on them. Just look, here's a thing that I want to know. I genuinely want to know because you are an important person in my life and I would like you to tell me. Mm -hmm. So tell me. And then the chips can kind of fall where they may after that, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's tough. A lot of people, I know so many people that avoid that really hard conversation with their partner. Um, they don't want to have that conversation with themselves as to what their values are, whether it's to have kids or to not have kids or where they want to be in five years, because it's scary once you make that decision. And maybe it's not the same as the person you're dating, then that means that relationship is over. So rather than find out that conclusion, you just kind of keep it going a little longer and a little longer until you realize like the decision's going to end up being made for you. Um, I never understood because for me, I, I value time so much. I'm like a little bit of a perfectionist. So, and I love to plan ahead. I, it's actually something I'm trying to not do as much. I'm trying to be more present, but I would spend way more time in five years from now or 10 years from now than I would in today. So I'd be like, well, where, where do you see yourself in 10 years? How many kids do you want? Where, like, where do you want to live? All of these things. And a lot of people couldn't take it. But I think that that was a great filtration system back when I was dating because it showed me who was serious and who wasn't serious and who was just wasting my time. Um, so I know like a lot of people thought it was neurotic, especially when you're in your 20s. But to me, it was really important. Um, and again, as someone who believes in, you know, fate to a really great extent, I think anyone that's supposed to be in your life is going to be there. So you shouldn't be, you know, scared or ashamed to say what you want out of a relationship. I have a buddy who always buys, he, he's done quite well for himself and he always buys stuff. And he has this little catchphrase where he says, future Andrew will pay for it. <laughs> and his point is that he has so much faith in his ability in the future that he's prepared to put his money on the line in the now. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can kind of be the same if you have the faith that you do. If you think that things are going to work out, you can unapologetically pursue just you, mm -hmm. just doing you and the things that you want to do and the way that you want to do them because you have faith that future Candice will sort it out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So are you someone that believes in fate or destiny or are you a strictly um, free will kind of guy? So mum is a Reiki master of like 15 years. Um, so she is big into astrology and spirituality and stuff like that um i think i would class myself technically as the spiritual but not religious crowd which is massively growing at the moment i tend in terms of fate i tend to believe that i always make things work i i'm hesitant to put the things that happen in my life up to a higher power or to anything else because i know how many times things go wrong and i've still managed to make it go okay so a lot of the time, what people may say is I left this last job of mine, but everything worked out in the end. So leaving that job or that job, me being fired from that job, it was meant to be because mm -hmm. if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I am now. Mm -hmm. To me, one of the problems that I have with that is it takes away the agency that you have of how hard you worked and how well it was that you were the reason that this went well. Mm -hmm. Let's flip that situation on its head and say that it wasn't fate that it, that did it, but it was you. Mm -hmm. The alternative is not only did I lose my job, but I made all of this good shit happen and look at where I am now, all of this pride that I have in myself. So I don't know 
and really it's a it's a I don't really care or mind whether it is predetermined for me but the, there is some sort of string that I'm following through through life like walking back through the minotaur's maze type thing I don't really mind if it is that or if it is complete locus of control personal sovereignty and upward agency mm-hmm. I don't really mind which one of those two it is what I value is the ability to make my own choices and to go take my life in a way that I want it to go and if I'm either pushing it forward or if I'm being pulled from the front I don't really mind which one of those two it is I just want to always get the outcome that I desired does that make no, sense No it totally does and I think the locus of control is an interesting bit too so I I think two things can exist at once when it comes to that I think that you can have destiny or fate but then you can also have a a vast amount of free will. So I think that there's a a bunch of options, right? Like your life can go in all of these trajectories and then those individual decisions kind of depict where, what lane you fall into. So when you have um, an ex, which, which one is it? I haven't talked about this in so long, like the external locus of control where um, that's like, everything's happening to you, right? Like victim mentality. And then there's the internal locus of control, which is I'm, I'm responsible for these things. And depending on which one you fall into, your reality is vastly different, right? So if you are in that victim mentality, you tend to be one of those people that constantly has things happening to you, right? Like you're like, of course, this is just my luck. How many people do we know that say, this is just my luck, but there's almost a law of attraction that's happening because you're living in this low vibrational place that you're literally shaping your reality to be bad or to be negative or to have bad luck. You're identifying as someone who has bad luck. Whereas the other person is like, this is an opportunity. How can I use this to get to where I want to be? Like there's some kind of golden nugget here for me to learn from. And that's actually going to help me. And that's something I've had to remind myself a ton with this year. I've had so like, again, I'm a planner. So I've had a lot of things that didn't go according to plan or people that would cancel last minute on me. Um, And then I would let my negative self-talk be like, you're not good enough. You're stupid. You should just stop podcasting. Right. So you, you take that one. That's one option. The other option is like there, this is a gift for some reason. This is a gift. They canceled for me. So maybe they weren't, so maybe, you know, even though they don't want to be associated with me outwardly, maybe this is to my benefit because maybe my brand shouldn't be associated with them, right? So there's always an option of if you want to look at things, you know, as a gift or as a victim or, you know, woe is me, I'm powerless. Um, So again, I think that is part of the free will, right? Those decisions where you want to live, your headspace, and then your reality shifts to that. And then that's your lane that you're going to be in. If that makes sense, I know it's kind of long-winded. No, it really does. I um, I have this theory that I've been working on. I put it in my newsletter a little while ago. So, you are the common denominator in your life. Everything that you encounter, if you encounter it consistently, it is more likely that it's because of you, not because of the world. So, you may always break up from your last relationship and it ends really bitterly. You may always start a new job and the boss that you get to know never really seems to like you that much. Or you might seem to always be looked after when you go abroad. People always are warm to you for some reason, whatever it might be. What's more likely? Is it more likely that 
every single one of your exes just happened to be a total bitch or dick that was really bitter upon the entry or the exit of the relationship. Is it more likely that throughout all of the different jobs you've had through your career, all of the bosses just really, they're, they're not nice and they've got some sort of prejudice against you? Or is it more likely that the entire world, every single city that you visit, everyone that you meet happens to be nice? Or is it that you are the common denominator, that you are the person that is causing this thing to occur? And when you start to see life in that way, it's really liberating. Firstly, because if you get consistent results, you can say that it's probably because of a consistent input that's come from you, but also it allows you to liberate yourself from feeling like it is your fault when somebody else does something to you, which doesn't often happen. So for instance, I have a couple of friends and every time that I have conversations with these different friends, there's always a particular sort of tone or, or tenor to the conversation, right? Like with one of them, it's always very defensive. With another one, it's always, um, quite a dick measure in competition around what's been going on recently. But I don't have that conversation with anybody else. I only have that conversation with that one person and that other one person. So the common denominator, and sure enough, it came up and one of the guys that I was talking to was talking about this thing and had a little bit of a sort of a, a jokey dig about something that we were talking about. And I said, man, like, I bet that you have this conversation with a lot of people, don't you? I don't have this conversation with anybody else, but I bet that you have this conversation all the time. He's like, yeah, sometimes. I'm like, okay, you are the common denominator in your life. And again, it reminds us that the locus of control is internal. We create the things that happen to us. And what's the alternative? Like, What's the alternative to having an internalized locus of control? To just lie there like in a pool of feces, <laughs> like just waiting for the end to come. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not a thing. Like, you can't do that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it is difficult. It is, it is easy and seductive to ask, like, why is this happening to me? But the world and time are going to continue ticking mm -hmm. in any case. So you might as well try and do something with it that's going to be at least beneficial to the situation that you're in. That's a really interesting point. So I don't know that I've ever heard of anyone making that connection, the, the latter connection. So... um I think a lot of people steer away from it because they feel there's too much responsibility. If I'm in, if I'm responsible for my reality, then I, there's a lot of accountability that I have to face with that. Especially if you want to change it, especially if you're in a space that you're not um, you're happy not happy with, right? It's not the highest version of yourself. But I think it's really great that you added. It's almost a good barometer for those instances, like you you said with your friend. Um, and you're like, huh, this is interesting. I don't usually have these types of interactions with people. Um, let me see if maybe this is common for them. And then they say yes. And you're like, okay, this isn't me. I'm, I'm not being the dick in this situation. Really it's a you thing. Yeah, yeah no, because exactly. there's a major upside. I think also the upside is that if you can make your life shit, you can also make it great. So it gives you that sense of control um, to whatever extent that you may or may not have it. But um, yeah, I love that because I actually had a similar run in with um with somebody and i'm like i don't i don't have this with anybody else i know that because <laughs> I, I i do believe that um people are mirrors right and often the things that we see that bother us has more to do with us than that other person that's usually the case again it, it goes back to a learning opportunity what am, what can i learn from this icky feeling that I have when I have an exchange with this type of person, right? Like maybe it's um, like your brother or something. And every time you're around your brother, you get really angry. Well, what that, what's that about myself? 
But there are those rare occasions where you're like, this doesn't, I know this doesn't, this feeling doesn't happen anywhere else. So where's that coming from? So it gets, it's a good separator of what is something that you can work on within yourself and then what is um, just kind of an outlier as far as human exchanges go. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I think um, just becoming aware of the texture of your own mind is quite important mm -hmm. as well. Like realizing I'm a bit angry right now. I'm a bit sad right now. I'm mm -hmm. a bit anxious right now. Like simply just being able to notice when that happens is so important. And um, if there's, if I get no closer to Nirvana than simply being aware of when I've been lost in thought, which is what a thousand days of meditation has given me so far. Like if I get no more peace in life than that, I'll class meditation as a win simply by being able to notice that the texture of my mind's changed. Oh, I've got, I could have been annoyed by that thing. Oh, oh I was made to feel a bit uncomfortable by that thing or embarrassed by that thing or pick your happy, joyful, whatever. Like just knowing that is so powerful because it means that you can step into your own programming. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sadly I, I see, I see a lot of the people that are around me or were around me in the past that are still kind of running on autopilot with regards to that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And, um, it's not nice because you're at the mercy of whatever thought comes careening into view. But the, for all of the people that are listening, they don't get to control the next thought that they think any more than they get to control the next set of words that comes out of my mouth. Like, that's actually the way that it works. You are not your thoughts. You are the person that hears your thoughts mm -hmm. inside of your head. So when you're walking around and when you tell yourself that I need to make the bed later on, well, should I make the bed later on? Well, I could do it now. <laughs> who the fuck are you talking to? Like, really, who are you telling? Like, who are you telling that you need mm -hmm. to do the bed to? So you are not your thoughts. And the less that we can identify with them, the more that we can notice when we've become lost in them, the easier life becomes. And that happens linearly for me. The less that I identify with the words that I hear myself say. And as well, you, you talked earlier on about sort of some of the, um, the past traumas and these narratives and stuff that have that come up from previous exchanges we've had, especially mm -hmm. in our formative years when we were kids, almost all of the voices that are in your head are some sort of authority teacher figure from when you were a child. Mm -hmm. So maybe a parent, maybe a grandmother, maybe an older brother or sister, maybe a teacher that you spent a lot of time with, something like that. Like, why, why would you allow that voice to be the one at 33 years old that is still telling you, because you may be able to deprogram some of that, but a lot of what I think is the source code has kind of been built in and you can slowly degrade that over time, but it's going to take a long time. What you can do far more quickly is just decide not to associate mm -hmm. with it. Okay. That's cool. Like Mrs. Wilkinson from third grade when I was like 11 years uh -huh. old or whatever, like, oh, that's cool. Dad, when he was when he was angry and, and, and something had gone wrong at work or he was stressed with like money or whatever it might be. Like you can hear these things come up. And um, yeah, again, from like the family side, I think that this is why we need to be increasingly careful with how we speak mm -hmm. to our kids. Like the voice that you use with your child as they're growing up is the voice that they're going to hear in their head for the rest of their life. And if that's the case, then you need to be incredibly careful. What is the sort of voice that you want your child to have in their head for the rest of their days? Do you want this bizarre poltergeist echo version of you that's like some fucking ghost haunting around in the back of their skull, just like singing these words out from, from the corner of the room? 
Do you want that to be an encouraging voice that tells them that they can do what it is that they want to do that is encouraging and loving and accepting of their failures, but expecting more from them in a way that motivates? But do you want this or do you want it to be you snapping at them because you've had a bad day because you expected more from a child? And um, yeah, I think that's something I can see myself getting far more. I, I don't have kids, so I don't I've got no horse in this race yet but i can see myself getting like super super passionate about telling other parents to do that because i already am and um, give me goosebumps. yeah um, i think we should oh, sorry we go should... ahead <laughs> nothing just we should be very careful with the the things that we tell our kids when they're when they're younger right no i couldn't agree more i was thinking as you were saying all of that holy shit that's so powerful and also, it seems so obvious, but when you say it, there's that sense of nuance, like no, not a lot of people are viewing parenting this way or viewing ourselves this way, right? We, so many of our beliefs are because of how we were raised and what we were told as a little kid. And if, you know, even half of the people spent that much time thinking about parenting before they be became parents, what a world that would be right? How happy would people be? Like we would, we would be starting from such a different baseline than what we currently are, because I don't think our parents' generation was ever challenged to consciously raise children. It was just something that you did. It was something that was expected. You, um, you kind of looked at them as little mini adults, which is not the case. Their brain is so unformed right like it's just it's waiting for you to manipulate it and hopefully the best way possible to make them into this great person but you don't realize that if you're being careless you're manipulating it into a bad space to where they have that negative self-talk and that low self-esteem um i know i've said this in previous episodes but for the first seven years kids are in a high theta state so their brain is almost purely running on theta waves. And that's kind of what happens when you when you sit in front of a TV is you start getting high theta. So that makes you really um, susceptible to programming. So that it almost kind of takes that critical thinking off and that filtration off. And it's just like, okay, digest, digest, digest. This is all just true. So if you tell your kid you're stupid or you're not good enough or um, – you know, you're not worthy of my time, these things sink in and they are there forever. So you have, you know, the two levels of your brain, you have your conscious mind and your unconscious mind. And your unconscious mind is almost like a perfect permanent record of your existence. Every single interaction you've ever had is in there. And just because it's not, you know, in your existence, it's not in your memory bank right now, doesn't mean that your subconscious isn't taking hold of that. And that's so much, um, that explains so much of our behaviors and our relationships and whether or not we're happy, our careers, everything that makes us us is every exchange we've had. So if you're consciously going into parenting and saying, I'm going to be hyper aware of my energy and the way that I speak and the words that I use around my kid, you're just making that subconscious a little less messy and a little less scary so that their inner dialogue can hopefully be a lot healthier. Um, so I'm curious, do you think that that inner voice is that is that ego? Would you say, would you categorize it that way? Or would you say um, kind of how you previously stated that it's, it could be, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Sanders from third grade or your uncle that one time or your dad that one time, or can it be a combination? Like who's living in your headspace? I don't know. Um, 
I've got Jordan Peterson on the show later this week. I guess it'd probably be a good question to ask him. Yeah. He seems to be pretty good into the developmental stuff. For me personally, I I can hear the the tenor and the tone of the of the people that were formative in my childhood years. Like I know mm-hmm. who those voices are. Um and for some of them, for some of them they're not really that helpful. But for the people who've had uh, for the people that are listening that have that, that have those voices that they are the least gracious parts of them, the ones that are disparaging, the ones that are negative, the ones that tell them that make them feel insufficient or make them feel like they're not enough or that they can't do enough or that they should be anxious or nervous or any of those things. Like you can change this with enough work. Mm -hmm. It is possible to do it. Maybe you're starting from a little bit more of a back foot. Maybe there could have been a version of you where you wouldn't have had to deprogram Mm-hmm. Uh, a really mean older brother or a, a really neglectful mm-hmm. grandmother or whatever it might be, but you can do it and it is going to take time, but you can certainly get there. And this kind of loops right back to what we were saying at the very beginning about looks mm-hmm. and inner state, because nobody at the age of seven years old is being treated better or worse by their parents because they happen to be pretty or because they happen mm-hmm. to be ugly or very few of them are so what that means is that everybody is walking around with this bizarre record the unconscious mind as you said this bizarre record like the sediments of rock of everything that's happened all of the different all of the tree rings and you can cut through it and see okay Here's, here's the moment when they did really well in swimming when they were 10 years old. And here's the moment where mum and dad split up. And here's the moment when they left home because they got kicked out because they were partying too much. And here's the moment when blah, blah, blah. All of these things are there, right? And they're just this accumulation of a very complex, nuanced, interconnecting actions and histories that have occurred. And then people look at someone and think that they can make some sort of a judgment about what their internal state is. Oh, it's easy for you because you're good looking. Oh, it's difficult for you because you're ugly. Like, no, it's easy for you because you're rich, poor, black, white. Like any of these sort of judgments is just completely stupid. Mm-hmm. It, you're not a serious thinker if that's how you believe that the world works. Mm-hmm. The people who are the most developed, the most self-actualized are the ones who've done the work. They're not the ones who were just given some perfect combination of genetics and then lounged around for the next 25 Mm -hmm. years. 50% of what you are is genetics, but the other 50% of what you are is from Mm -hmm. nurture. So people have had to go and do that work. And there is, for the people that are listening who have negatives in a monologue, who have a disparaging voice that tells them things that they don't want to hear, I can promise Mm -hmm. you you can get rid of it. Um, Maybe not entirely, maybe not forever, Maybe in your less gracious moments, the times when you're stuck in traffic, the times when you're angry with your kids, with your partner, when you feel nervous or depressed or whatever it is, maybe that's the moments when they'll come back up. But for the most part, you can turn the volume down an awful lot. And like that's one of the most liberating things that you can know, that something that you thought was so much a part of yourself, that it was the voice that you heard. It's the, the sound that your mind makes when you want to think that the, the, accent that that has can be changed into one which is more supportive of you as opposed to one that you feel is destructive to you and um like if that's not a justification for why people should take self-growth and and personal development seriously then i don't really know what is 
I know. I, I always find it fascinating the people that are like, self-help won't work on me or I'm just not into self-help or personal development. Like, what do you mean you're not into those things? I think it's, there's this quote that says, if you're not embarrassed of the person that you were a year ago, you're not doing enough. And that really resonated with me because I think the beautiful thing about um, podcasting or uh, Twitter or um, journaling or anything that there's like hard proof of who you were, it's like, man, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I tweeted that. I can't believe that's what I thought. And you see a shift on an identity almost. And that can be in as little as, I mean, for some people, I'm sure there, there can be a day you have a monumental breakthrough and all of a sudden you're like, holy cow, where have I been living? Um, I know you've mentioned journaling on other podcasts, and I think that that's such a great outlet. I think everyone should have some form of journal, whether it's you use your Twitter feed as that because you maybe want it to be more um, open in public, or maybe you have a notepad, whatever it is. But I think it's such a powerful tool in personal development. And if you want to get a little bit woo-woo, it's like it's very powerful for manifestation and those kinds of things as well. Um, and you know, from a practical guide, even just goal uh, goal orientation. Um, I know a lot of people don't do it because they think it's either feminine or it's you know it's too girly or it's too immature, but um, I think it's a really powerful tool, tool that's underutilized. Yeah. Susanna Hallinan is one of the world's most successful positive psychologists. And she said that gratitude is the foundation upon which happiness is built. And I'm like, okay, fine, fine. And this was like episode 20 or something. And we're on 301 now or something like that. I was like, right, I'm going to give it a go. And then there is six or seven diaries down there, which are full like six or seven half month diaries um, that I've completed. And it's just a part of your day, you know, like it's the same as the, your dad used to wake up and have a cigarette first thing in the morning. Okay, like it's just a ritual. Mm -hmm. It's just sit down and, and, and write some stuff down. I mean, anybody that thinks that, that doing gratitude is too girly needs to have a word with themselves. Like wh what else are you here for? It's If it's not to be grateful for the things that are happening. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing masculine about being depressed about everything. <laughs> no, like that not. just sucks. It's not, it's not being masculine. It's just life sucking. Uh -huh. I totally agree. Um, I wanted to ask if we are allowed to get any peeks into your TEDx talk, because I know that happened the last that we were, uh, we were talking. Like, can you give us a little, a little trailer of what you talked about and what that experience was like? Because to me, I would be so nervous that just that's such a big accomplishment so first congratulations and anything that you can um you can tell us in all ears thank you yeah um i got invited to do a tedx talk with 10 10 weeks to prepare most of the time it takes about 10 months so it was nice to have a forcing function that fo pushed my focus and directed it to be honest it was fine i think anybody that needs to give a talk if you've never done public speaking before i never had um you can do a 20 minute talk and learn it from scratch in 10 weeks. Um, it'll take an hour a day or a couple of hours every other day, but you'll be able to get it done. Uh, I wanted to do something that was really meaningful to me. Hopefully I'll get asked to do multiple TEDx talks and maybe a, a TED eventually, but um, I, I figured that it needed to be something that was super meaningful to me. And one of the common themes that goes through a lot of the stuff that I talk about is embracing your weirdness. For a long time, I buried the person that I truly was under so many personas that I didn't know who I was anymore. And this is why the journey for self-inquiry for a lot of people, myself included, 
begins with kind of just digging away all of the assumptions that you have. It's like, I, I, okay, I believe this thing. Is that true? No, it's not. Right. Okay. I'll get rid of that. I believe this thing. Is that true? No, it's not. Right. Okay. And you just keep on going. You just keep on throwing away all these different assumptions and ideas about yourself and about the world and about what you want and about the way that you should believe and live and all this sort of stuff. So I did uh, how embracing your weirdness will improve your life. And it starts off as we're talking about the chances of you being born. So the only reason that you're here is because of a precise combination of 4 billion years of survival and reproduction of every single one of your ancestors going right, 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 right back to single cells, prokaryotic to eukaryotic bacteria. And the only way that your specific combination of genetics exists is if every single one of those mates and some smart people ran the figures and worked out that the odds of your specific combination of genetics existing is one in 10 to the power of 2,685,000. That number's not just bigger than all the particles in the universe. It's bigger than all the particles in the universe if each particle was itself another universe. Oh, wow. It's bigger than the likelihood of the entire 2 million person population of Northern Ireland all rolling a trillion-sided dice and each getting a seven. It's basically zero. The chance of you existing is zero. And the synopsis of the talk is that you have this cosmic miracle, which is what's birthed you, the likelihood is is basically none. The, the fact that you're here for this brief window of time in between two eternities of nothingness is unbelievably unlikely. And yet you are going to allow status games or social norms or internal fears to curb the person that you are. Like it's your duty to the universe and the human race at large to do what only you can do because only you can. So I give this example about Salvador Dali, who is this very eccentric guy. He had the mustache in the dress sense, and he uh, he once had to be wrenched out of a deep sea diving suit mid-seminar because he arrived and it malfunctioned, and he started suffocating on stage. So he's this super, super eccentric artist. And um, if he hadn't embraced his weirdness and created his work, the world would have never received it. Michelangelo was brilliant, but he didn't do Dali. And Da Vinci was brilliant, and he didn't do Dali. So anything other than the absolute truest manifestation of Dali's inner being would have left the world fundamentally less. And what I try and get across to people is that that's the imperative which we all have. It's your duty to do what only you can do because only you can. And if you don't paint your Dali, no one else will. So that's what I did. And I, I did some research and I had some fun examples and then... I gave it and I didn't mess up. It was one take, one and done. There was no audience there, just a team of audio visual people with masks on. Uh, so it was quite non-typical for a TED talk, but yeah, it'll be up in a couple of weeks. And I'm really like super, super excited to, to get it up. It's really meaningful to me. And I'm very happy that I chose that as my first TED um, topic. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. I can't wait to listen to it or watch it. Um, I feel like if that doesn't give someone hope, like what will, like if you don't listen to those numbers or the impossibility of your existence and you don't leave that so hopeful and excited and just filled with energy, I don't know what will. So I think that was, I don't think you could have done better for your first one. Definitely not. Very, very yeah. powerful Thank you. stuff. Yeah, I am. Um, it's a, it's an interesting one. There's like this, so I, I I put it into three sections. I said that people hide their weirdness because they're scared they won't be as competitive, they won't be as popular, and they won't be as fulfilled. 
And um, progressively throughout the talk, hopefully I managed to break all of those things down. And uh, yeah, if it, if it affects other people as profoundly as writing it affected me, even if it affects them like 1% of that, then I think it'll be a, a job well done. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, again, thank you so much for giving me your time. I know you're very busy with recording. Um, can you tell the listeners how they can support you, where they can find your podcast, your socials, and um, any projects that you're releasing soon? Cool. So just Modern Wisdom, wherever you listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, etc. cetera. Uh, search Chris Williamson on Instagram. I'm not the anti-Semitic MP from Derby. There's another... British person called Chris Williamson, who was recently, recently part of a news scandal for being anti-Semitic. So I'm not that one. Uh, I'm the other one. Um, I said my, my sole goal for 2021 is to Google search rank higher than Chris Williamson MP, <laughs> but we'll, we'll wait and see how I get on with that. Um, uh, yeah. If you want to check out what I'm, what I'm doing, just follow me on Instagram or Twitter. That's where I put most of my stuff. And then the podcast is Modern Wisdom, wherever you listen. Awesome. Well, thank you again. We'll have to do this again soon. Sure. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. You can also share this podcast with a friend. It helps my podcast grow and I really appreciate it. I hope to see you next week.